So I hope you noticed in the story that Karen just read that Thomas, one of the 12 apostles, had a nickname. His nickname was Didymus, or the twin. Now, that's almost universally seen to be a metaphorical nickname. That is, Thomas probably was not a biological twin. Rather, Thomas, in so many ways, was two people at the same time. He was both faithful and skeptical. He was both strident in his desire to follow Jesus and waffling in his lack of evidence at seeing Jesus for who he is. And I want you to just, as we begin today, reflect on how in so many ways all of us are twins. All of us at one time, if we're being honest with ourselves, whether we've been Christians for decades or whether we've just begun to come back to church, all of us at one time or another feel close to God. We feel faithful. We feel committed. And yet at so many other points in our lives, we doubt. We wonder if God is really out there. We're skeptical. All of us are twins within our own hearts, within our own heads, if we're honest. And one of the things I love about this concluding story in our studies of the Gospel of John is that the Bible, through this story, meets us as we really are. It meets us in our moments of doubt, in the fluidity of our spiritual lives. We wax on and wax off like Daniel-san in The Karate Kid. Sometimes we're feeling it, sometimes we're not feeling it. And the Bible understands that about humans and meets us there today through this story of Thomas and Jesus. Now, today we conclude our series, as I mentioned earlier, in John's Gospel And in the past couple of weeks, we've seen the death of Jesus of Nazareth and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And this morning, we look at the end of John chapter 20, where we meet Thomas, the doubter, Thomas, the skeptic. And as I studied this text this week, I was very surprised to hear that most of the people that write about the gospel of John for a living, scholars and commentators on this book, say that this is actually the climax of John's entire gospel. What everything has been leading us to is Jesus's interaction here with Thomas. Chapter 21 is sort of mop-up. It's tying together loose ends, but these verses are what John has has been building up to the entire time. And it makes some sense when we see in verse 31 the purpose statement of the gospel that we've referred to many times in the past few months. It's appended to the end of this story with Thomas. So why does John, the writer, give us such, give such preeminence to this story? What is this story intended to teach people like us who live 2,000 years later in a very different time and a very different culture? Well, I want to summarize that like this. Here's the main idea for you this morning. God wants the story of Jesus Christ to move you from doubt to faith. That's the point of this story, and really that's the point of John's entire gospel God wants the story of Jesus Christ to move you from doubt to faith. As we go through these verses, I want to break it up into three parts. The struggle with doubt, the confession of faith, and the way to belief. So first, let me show you the struggle with doubt. Look in the verses again and you'll see Thomas, John tells us, was one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples who become the apostles, was not present 
the prior Sunday, which we read about in verses 19 through 23, when Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to his disciples and commissioned them to go into the world with the Holy Spirit leading them and to bear witness to the resurrection. That's what verses 19 through 23 are about. Thomas wasn't there. Maybe he slept in that Sunday. I'm sure you've never done that. But Thomas did that. And the other disciples told him what had happened. Verse 25, we read, The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And that verb there, told, is a present tense progressive verb. That's nerdy talk that means that they repeatedly told him. It's not like they just said one time, oh, by the way, you missed Jesus, he's alive again. They consistently and repeatedly witnessed to the resurrected Christ to their friend Thomas. In other words, they were doing to Thomas, the disciples, exactly what Jesus had commissioned them to do. They were testifying to the truth of the resurrection. But Thomas doesn't believe it. Thomas is a skeptic, you see. He's a doubter. Look at what he says, verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side until I can see those things, no way. I will never believe. Notice what what it is that Thomas wants to see. He wants proof. Thomas wants physical, tangible evidence. Something that he can see. Something that he can touch. I don't believe that dead people rise again to life unless you show me with my own eyes and I can touch his physical body I call bull. That's basically what Thomas says. Now, on the one hand, Thomas certainly should have believed. He should have believed the testimony of his friends. I mean, they undoubtedly gave him all kinds of evidence, some of the evidence we saw last week, based on what they had seen. And Jesus later rebukes Thomas for not believing. He says in verse 27, don't disbelieve, but believe. And then in verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. By the way, that's each one of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, the reason you believe isn't because you've seen physically the resurrected Jesus. You believe because you're taking it on the evidence or testimony of the apostles, the Bible. So Thomas is asking for a level of evidence that really isn't reasonable for any other Christian to ask for. Thomas should have believed, but he doesn't believe. But on the other hand, we can understand, we can understand his doubt, right? Uh, remember how incredulous the resurrection of Jesus is. Let's not be too familiar with our own religiosity and our own gospel story that we forget and neglect the stupendous and unique nature of a dead person who had not breathed for three days, rising again to life, never to die again. That doesn't happen every day. It makes sense to be skeptical of that. It's a unique thing. It's something that requires supernatural intervention. And so Thomas's skepticism, Thomas's doubt, I hope is something that you can relate to. In fact, I think that part of the reason John included this story in his gospel is because he wants to invite and welcome your own skepticism and your own doubt as you consider who Jesus 
really is. Because the question that Thomas had is really also our profoundest question. And that is, did this really happen? Has Jesus really, bodily, historically, in fact, and not just in fairy tale, been raised from the dead? That's Thomas's question. And that's what he's skeptical about. And John here takes seriously the question. It's as if God himself, who inspired John to write these words, knows that this is the very question that countless of humans would ask in the future. Perhaps he knows that it's the question you're struggling with right now, this morning. It's the question that so many are skeptical of. You see, Thomas is every generation's sincere inquirer. He's every generation's honest seeker. And here, the scripture is giving the seeker and the skeptic some space, some time, and some respect. So, if you're not sure what you think about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I want to encourage you to view this story in John's gospel as an invitation. An invitation to consider the evidence. I'm convinced that most people in our age, in the 21st century, are guilty of what C.S. Lewis almost 100 years ago now, called chronological snobbery. That is, we believe that these ancient people that the Bible writes about would have had a really easy time to believing that Jesus rose from the dead. They were superstitious, ignorant, non-modern people, after all. But for us modern, educated, liberated, enlightened people, it's much more difficult. That's a classic case of chronological snobbery. We think that just because we live later in history, we're therefore smarter. And I want you to know that the resurrection would have been just as difficult for a first century Jewish person or a first century Gentile to believe as it is for you and me to believe today. And so I want to lovingly challenge you if you're a skeptic or doubting here today. I want to challenge you to consider the fact that the resurrection of Jesus is historically much more fully attested than most other events of ancient history that we take for granted. It's simply not enough for you to dismiss the Christian teaching about the resurrection of Jesus by saying it just couldn't have happened. You must rather, if you're going to be honest intellectually, face and answer the questions that the resurrection poses, such as, why did Christianity rise so rapidly and with such power if the resurrection was a hoax? Why did this band of Jewish men who claimed to believe in the resurrection of their Messiah willingly go to grisly deaths one by one if they knew that this was a made-up story? How do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades and publicly maintained their testimony in the face of great pressure to recant? Thomas was a doubter. He asked these questions. And John is inviting you to ask similar questions. And then when answers are provided, to believe. So let's look at that secondly. We see the struggle with doubt and then the confession of faith. You know, if you've heard of the Apostle Thomas, you probably know him as Thomas the Doubter, right? Which is somewhat unfortunate because Thomas was actually a man of remarkable faith. And uh, we see that in the confession that he makes in this story. Look at what happens. A week later, verse 26, Jesus appears again to the disciples in the same place. This time Thomas is there. He'd showed up on time for church that day. 
And uh, Jesus appears in verse 26 and says, peace be with you. And then notice what he does. He immediately approaches Thomas, the doubter. And he shows Thomas that Jesus has been listening. I mean, think about this. He tells Thomas exactly the things that Thomas had been questioning the prior week. Now, it's not like the disciples were spies and had gone back to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, here's what Thomas doesn't believe in. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to get him next week. Well, Jesus knows. Jesus has been watching Thomas. Jesus has been listening to Thomas. And now Jesus comes and approaches Thomas in his doubt. Jesus cares enough about Thomas to meet him personally and specifically at his most needy point, his own doubt. And then we see Thomas respond. Jesus says, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And look at what Thomas says, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Notice Jesus doesn't actually, I mean, excuse me, Thomas doesn't actually even take Jesus up on his offer. He doesn't place his hand in Jesus' side. He doesn't put his finger on the wounds in his wrist. He simply proclaims Jesus as both Lord and God. Did you know that this is the only place in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus is unabashedly and clearly referred to as God? That's part of the reason why many see this as the climax of all of John's gospel. This is what John has been building up to the entire time. This is the climax of all four gospels. It's what all four gospels have been building up to the entire time. John has steadily revealed Jesus to be God. Jesus said in John 8 that he was without sin. He said in John 7, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said that if you know me, you know the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me, John 14, 6. He's taken on God's Old Testament name, Yahweh, I am, multiple times as we have seen. And now here, the final conclusion is drawn via Thomas. Jesus is, in fact, God. He is Lord and God. You could say that this is the strongest, boldest confession of faith in the entire Bible. Let me show you two things about it real quick as we think about this confession. Both of which combine to make it so remarkable. First, this is a confession with contents. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully human, 100%. And fully divine, 100%. The mathematics of God is 100% plus 100% equals 100%. 100% man, 100% God. He is the word made flesh. This story caps and bookends what we saw way back in the prologue in John 1. He's God and he's also Lord. Jesus rules this universe right now at this very moment as we are living and breathing Jesus Christ, at the right hand of God the Father, is allowing you to draw in breath. He's allowing you to live and move and have your being. He is orchestrating and controlling in his sovereignty every single event that happens in this universe from the quasars billions of light years away to the minuscule details of your life. Jesus Christ is Lord, he is the king. The world revolves around him. He runs the show. And each of our lives should be lived in submission to his lordship. 
So, if you're going to believe, if you're going to have faith, you must believe in something that is true. Faith has content. Faith involves accepting propositions that Jesus Christ is God. That is in accord with the way things really are. You must also accept that he is your Lord. Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a spiritual mentor. He is the king of the universe. And so faith means that you don't just agree with his teachings. You don't just have nice feelings. Faith is acceptance of content. It's accepting things that are true. It's believing that Jesus is who he says he is. Faith, faith is faith in content. Thomas's confession has content, but secondly, notice that it's a confession that's personal. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And here's what you need to believe and understand. Until you personally see Jesus as your Lord and your God, you can't really experience change or forgiveness or connection with God. It's not enough just to accept the propositions intellectually. You must personally embrace him. One commentator writes this, Thomas has just experienced Jesus as not only the great universal Lord and God, but also as his Lord and his God. You see, faith involves giving your personal allegiance, your personal commitment, your very self over to Jesus. And so here's the question that John is asking. You know what? It's not John. The Holy Spirit right now is asking you, have you done that? Have you personally believed Jesus to be your Lord and your God? Listen, if you haven't, you are not a Christian. You might be here in church. You might have been in church every week for 25 years. But if you haven't personally confessed him as Lord and Savior, you are not yet one of his. John Stott was a British pastor who lived in the 20th century. He died a few years ago. And he has a great book called Basic Christianity that's an introduction to the Christian faith. It's a great thing to give to your friends if they're not followers of Jesus and are interested. And in this book, he writes about uh, the power of the image he experienced of Jesus in his own conversion. The image he experienced of Jesus when he came to faith comes from the last book of the Bible, Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. And Stott says that he, at a moment in his early life, for the first time, felt and experienced the power of Jesus Christ standing at the door of his heart and knocking. And he writes about how, as a boy, he heard that, ver that verse and he came to Jesus in repentance and faith. And he wrote this the next day in his diary. Listen to what Stott says. Up till now, Christ has been on the circumference and I have but asked him to guide me instead of giving him complete control. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. I have heard him, and now he has come into my house. He has cleansed it and now rules it. I really have felt an immense and new joy throughout today. It is the joy of being at peace with the world and of being in touch with God. Jesus right now stands at the door and knocks on your heart, in your life, and the Spirit right now is asking, do you hear him? 
Do you see Jesus for who he is? Have you confessed him personally as your Lord and your God? Have you believed what Thomas in this moment believes? If you have believed that, do you need to be refreshed in that truth? If you haven't believed that, do you need to do that today? Well, how do you get there? How can you do that? I want to show you third, three things real quickly in the story as we look at the way to belief. The way to belief, three things. How do you get from doubt to faith? First, you must trust the apostles' testimony. That's exactly what Thomas did not do at first. Remember, he said, I don't believe it. And he needed Jesus to show up to prove it to him. But Jesus does say in verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And then John concludes verse 31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Listen, if you want to get to belief, to to full confession and commitment in Jesus, go to the testimony of the ones who were there and saw it. Go to the witnesses of the apostles. How do you do that? Well, you go to the scripture. That's what the New Testament is. Read through the gospels with an open heart and with an open mind. Ask questions of the story. And maybe more importantly, allow the story to ask questions of you. There's a lot of profitable things for you to do to get to belief. Spend time with other Christians. That's a great thing to do. Read good Christian books. Listen to sermons. All of those are helpful, but the best thing to do is to go to the testimony of the apostles, to go to the Bible itself. Read it. Listen to it. And be careful. I've got a good friend who, uh, when he was in college, was not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he was a committed atheist. He is one of those types that love to get into arguments with evangelicals on his college campus. And one day a friend challenged him, you know what, if you're so convinced that the Bible is just a bunch of junk, why don't you just read it? And so my friend said, you know what, I'm going to do that. I'm going to prove the Bible wrong. And so he went and bought a copy of the Bible and he started reading it. And about 15 years later, he planted a church in Phoenix as a Christian pastor. And when he tells that story, he says, I had no idea what I was getting into because the Bible is powerful. It's sharper than any double-edged sword and it's brought many men and women who have attempted to prove it wrong into its net by God's grace. How do you get to belief? The first thing you should do is examine the story itself. Second, remember Jesus's patience. I alluded to this earlier, but do you see the patience of Jesus in this story? He's patient with Thomas. When Tom, and remember this, Thomas was one of the disciples. So he was there when Jesus repeatedly said, hey, guess what? I'm going to die. And then three days later, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be raised from the dead. And all the disciples were like, what? What? Can we take a nap? You know, the disciples are completely clueless. Thomas is there. He's one of those guys. He's seen Jesus do these miracles. But Jesus dies, and then his friends say, hey, Thomas, Jesus is alive. Thomas says, come on, show me some evidence. And Jesus knows that about Thomas. Jesus sees Thomas. And when he comes to Thomas a week later, he doesn't say, hey, Thomas, what do you think of this? How about them apples, right? What do you think of this, Thomas? I told you this was going to happen. 
You blockhead? Believe me. No. Jesus is gracious with Thomas. He's patient with Thomas. He is okay, in a sense, with Thomas's doubts. And yet he still expects Thomas to come towards him. He patiently pushes him towards faith. And you need to understand that. Jesus is patient with you as well. In your doubts and in your skepticism, if you haven't come to Jesus because you have intellectual doubts or you have emotional doubts or because you were wounded by the church earlier in your life and you don't want anything to do with it, Jesus is patient with you. He's waiting for you to see him for who he is and he's slowly drawing you to himself. He's long-suffering with his people. And, And the Bible actually tells us that the return of Jesus Christ, which is going to happen one day, to judge all people is actually being delayed in part because of God's patience. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is patiently waiting for you to see him as he really is and to come to him in faith. He's patiently waiting for you to to lay down your doubts and to lay down your criticisms and to lay down your false gods and to go back home, back home to God through Jesus. So will you come? Will you make good and wise use of his patience with you? He's at this very moment treating you with mercy by allowing you to hear again his call to come to him in faith. The way to believe, first, trust the testimony, second, see God's patience, and then Lastly, see Jesus' wounds. Again, remember that Thomas doesn't even take Jesus up on his offer. That's such an interesting thing to me in this story. Here's this evidentialist demanding evidence, and the evidence presents itself, and he doesn't even want to examine it. Because seeing the wounds of Jesus was enough for him. My Lord and my God, he cried out in that moment. The wounds of Jesus are what really blew Thomas away, you see. Why is that? It's because only a wounded God can show the depth of love that we need. It is a wounded God that really brings people to him. Listen, our God, the only God, the God who made everything and sustains everything, the God who holds the universe in his hands, our God was wounded, wounded for us. He is a gored God. He is a God run through. That truth and that realization blasts through all of Thomas's doubts and fears. And guess what? It will blast through all of your doubts and fears as well. The wounds of God say, this is what God did for you. This is how much God loves you. And listen, unless you have a God with wounds, not just a teacher, not just a man, not even just a God, but a God-man who was crucified and buried and raised, unless you have that, you will never blast through your life to spiritual change and to renewal and to hope. And so you must let the wounds of God for you drive you to him in faith and love. Can you see that? Do you see as we've gone through John together for months, that Jesus Christ came into the world so that you might have life in his name. He takes the wounds 
He takes the wounds that our evil causes. He takes the punishment that we have wrecked on this world. He takes the curse that our sins deserve. He takes the abandonment that we should suffer. Abandonment from God. Abandonment from one another. He takes the darkness that we can have light. That's what the real God is like. The real God doesn't say, get your stuff together and then you can approach me. The real God knows that we can't get our stuff together. And so he approaches us and dies and bleeds and suffers. Is that what you think God is like? Because if you don't see him in that way, you don't really know him. John wrote this book that you will believe and that by believing you may have life apart from Jesus is only death. Apart from Jesus is only hopelessness. Apart from Jesus is only separation. Come to Jesus. God's patient. He's waiting. Come to him now if you've never come before. Come to him now again if you know you need his continual love. What happened to Thomas? You know, Thomas, uh, after this moment, makes this confession. And church history tells us that he became the apostle to the Indian subcontinent. He went and shared the gospel to India. You can Wikipedia him and learn about his story. And church history also tells us that Thomas was martyred, put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ around 72 AD. So interestingly enough, when John wrote this gospel, Thomas had been dead for 10 to 15 years. Now John's writing this thinking about Thomas's life. A man who once said, There's no way this is true. Made one of the most pronounced and beautiful confessions in all the Bible when he saw Jesus for who he really is. That's the kind of transformation that happens when people connect with Jesus. Are you connected? This isn't just a story. This is the real world. Jesus calls you. He beckons you. He summons you. Come to him in faith. See him for who he is. Rest in his love and grace. Let's pray.